The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now, for our featured presentation. It's now time for you to rejoin our new world and to serve its collective humanity. Live as one of them, color, and discover where your strength and your power are needed. And always hold in your heart the pride of your special heritage. They can be a great people, color, they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening. Now we live in a world where we get at least three to four comic book films a year it seems like. Hell, I mean Marvel has already laid out their plans for the next eight years. We're going to see more Captain Americas, more Iron Mans, Thor, Hulk, Avengers 2, 3, and 4, and that's just Marvel. DC has more than a few movies of their own plan for the next few years. Sony, who has the rights to Spider-Man, and and 20th Century Fox, who has the rights to X-Men, are also going to flood the theaters with a number of films over the next few years. Now, if you're a comic book movie fan, you're living in a new golden age. But I will say that there is an argument starting to brew regarding the oversaturation of all these films. But we'll save that debate for another show. What if I told you there was a time when no studio would even think of making or releasing a film based on a comic book? In the early 1970s, when you thought of a comic book being translated into a live-action piece, your thoughts immediately turned to the 1960s Adam West Batman movie and TV show. And let's be honest, those were never taken seriously. In fact, In fact, in the 1970s, Warner Brothers, who is the parent company of DC Comics, had the rights to many beloved comic book properties, but did nothing with them. It stayed this way until a trio of European producers came knocking on the door looking to secure the rights to the most well-known comic book character of all time and make a film that would change the way comic book movies were made forever. On this episode of How Is This Movie? Superman. Even though you've been raised as a human being, you are not one of them. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. A good reporter doesn't get great stories, Jimmy. A good reporter makes makes them great. Lois Lane, say hello to Clark Kent. Well. Any more at home like you? Uh, not really, no. the name of this flying whatchamacallit to go with the Daily Planet like bacon and eggs. I want the real story. I want the inside dope on this guy.
Easy, miss. I've got you. You, you've got me. Who's got you? <laughs> What's your background? Uh, where do you hail from? Well, it's uh, kind of hard to explain, actually. See, I'm from um, I come from a planet called Krypton. Huh? Krypton. This planet will explode within 30 days. Is that how a warped brain like yours gets its kicks? By planning the death of innocent people? No. By causing the death of innocent people. Fire. It occurs to me that a 500 megaton bomb planted at just a proper point would, uh, would destroy most of California. You're a dreamer, Lex Luthor. A sick, twisted dreamer. Your plan couldn't possibly work. I'll admit there were a few problems. In 1973, producers Alexander and Elia Salkin, along with Pierre Spangler, met with DC to discuss acquiring the rights to Superman. They wanted to make an unprecedented, epic film. And this was the first step. It took a little over a year of meetings with DC for them to get the rights. The main issue is that no one besides the producers thought this was a good idea. Everyone laughed at the idea of making a live-action Superman film. This was the early 1970s. It was a really gritty time for Hollywood, and comic book characters belonged in Saturday morning cartoons. That was the general consensus of the time. It took putting a list of actors that could play Superman, including James Caan, Clint Eastwood, and Steve McQueen, for DC to agree to license the rights to Spangler and the Salkins. Now, with the rights in hand, it was time for them to get started on the project. The producers went with a rarely used method to make the film. They signed with Warner Brothers what is known in the film industry as a negative pickup deal. Now, let me explain how this works. The producers agree to make every aspect of the film from start to finish, including financing the whole project. And the studio, in this case Warner Brothers, agrees to buy the film for a set price and will get North American distribution rights. Now here are some things to keep in mind. Warner Brothers is under no obligation to help with financing if the film goes over budget. It's up to the producers to come up with the funding needed. Now on the other hand, the producers can sell the rights to distribute the film in other markets around the world, and they'll usually make a profit off these sales before the first day of shooting. George Lucas used this type of deal when making The Empire Strikes Back and ran into some major issues with investors when the film ran over budget. Now, another sort of catch-22 is that before the producers could sell the distribution rights to the film around the world and raise the capital needed from investors, they needed a good product to pitch. And like I said, no one thought making Superman a live-action film was a good idea. They needed to do something crazy, and that's exactly what they did. They reached out to the biggest actor in the world, Marlon Brando, and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And by that, I mean $3.7 million salary and 14% of the total gross of the film. All of this to play Superman's father, Jor-El. This is no fantasy. No careless product of wild imagination. No, my good friends. These indictments that I have brought you today, specific charges listed herein against the individuals, their acts of treason, their ultimate aim of sedition. These are matters of undeniable fact. I ask you now to pronounce judgment on those accused. This was the biggest payday 
ever for a film. And it made even crazier headlines when word got out that it was only for 12 days of shooting. But not stopping there, the producers also signed Gene Hackman to the role of Lex Luthor for $2 million, another massive payday. Lex, what is this obsession with real estate? All the time, land, land, land. Mr. Desmarker, when I was six years old, my father said to me, Get out. <laughs> Before that, he said, Son, stocks may rise and fall. Utilities and transportation systems may collapse. People are no damn good, but they will always need land, and they'll pay through the nose to get it. Remember, my father said, land. Right. It's a pity that uh, he didn't see from such humble beginnings how I've created this empire. An empire? This? Miss Tessmucker, how many girls do you know who have a Park Avenue address like this one? Park Avenue address? 200 feet below. Do you realize what people are shelling out up there for a few miserable rooms off a common elevator? What, what more could anyone ask? And to seal the deal, they enlisted Godfather writer Mario Puzo to write the script. And write he did, a little over 500 pages. To put things into some perspective, the average movie script ranges between 90 and 120 pages. With a 500-page script, the producers made the choice to do two films at once. With Brando, Hackman, and Pusa all on board, the project gained serious legitimacy, and the Salkins and Spangler were able to get the funding needed for Superman. The producers looked at a number of directors for Superman. And after, inter- after several interviews, they eventually settled on Guy Hamilton, who had directed a number of James Bond films, including Goldfinger. Pre-production was taking place in Italy, where Superman was going to be filmed. However, unforeseen changes in the value of the Italian currency changed all of that, and the producers quickly scrapped shooting plans in Italy and moved the whole production to England. But there was a big problem. Guy Hamilton was a tax exile and couldn't spend more than a month at a time in England. Now, the producer stood to save millions by moving everything to England and made the choice to let Hamilton go and just search for another director. Now, this is a bit of a funny story I read when I was researching this part. After watching The Omen, the producers sought out Richard Donner and called him one Sunday morning. I was sitting on the toilet on a Sunday morning and the phone rang. And this strange Hungarian voice said, this is Alexander Salkine. He said, I'm making Superman. I said, well, that's great. I would like you to direct it. He said, I'll pay you a million dollars. I said, hey, how are you? You know, where do you live and how do I get to you? I said, you'll pay me a million dollars. He said, I'll pay you a million dollars. He said, it's two pictures. Aha. I still, I was was making $100,000. If that, I have Gene Hackman and Marlon Brando set. And so, overnight, my life turned around. I got up, washed my hands, and I'd written it down on a little tiny card that was in the bathroom. It was a hairdresser's card, this girl that came to your house to cut hair. And I wrote down on the back of it, a million dollars, which I don't even think I got enough zeros in. And I wrote Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, the dates they were available, and Superman. That card today is still, it's the most important card of my life. Once the script arrived at Donner's office, he was shocked and dismayed by two things. One, the size, 500 plus pages, and more importantly, how campy he thought the script was. When Donner read this, he saw no difference between this script and that 1960s Batman TV show. This had to change, or Donner wasn't going to do the film. He called on his screenwriting friend, Tom Mankiewicz, to do a complete script rewrite. Mankiewicz was known for script rights around the industry, and he had worked on films such as Live and Let Die and Diamonds Are Forever. Now, Mankiewicz 
also expressed his reluctancy to tackle this project based solely on the size of the script and the amount of time it was going to take. However, Donner was eventually able to convince him to take the job, and when it's all said and done, not a single line of dialogue written by Mario Puzza made it into the finished films. The original budget for the film was set at $35 million. Now, that was an incredible sum of money in 1976. It would be like a $200 million budget today. And don't forget that $5.7 million of that was salaries for Brando and Hackman. Speaking of Brando and Hackman, we have Lex Luthor and we have Jor-El, but it was ultimately going to be up to Richard Donner to pull off the monumental task of casting the role of Superman. Before Donner came on board, the role was offered to a number of actors, including Charles Bronson, Robert Redford, and like I mentioned earlier, James Caan. Well, Caan turned down the role because he said he just couldn't wear the costume. Donner had another idea altogether, however. He didn't want a big name to play Superman because audiences would identify that actor with other roles they had been in. He went looking for a true unknown and found that person in Christopher Reeve. The producers were not crazy about the idea of Reeve, and Donner was a little reluctant as well, so it was agreed that they would do a screen test. Well, Reeves nailed the audition and was offered the role that would also change his life. Side note here, Christopher Reeve's total salary for both films $250,000, just a spot less than uh, what Brando and Hackman were making. For the role of Lois Lane, actress Margot Kidder, who was living in the Midwest at the time, had just had a baby and, in her own words, was in a bad marriage. She had heard about the casting call and decided to just fly out to Hollywood and give it a shot. She auditioned. After several callbacks, she landed the role. Chief, here's that story in East Side Murder Case. The way I see it, it's a banner headline, front page, maybe my picture. There's only one P in Rapist. Lois Lane, say hello to Clark Kent. Told you one P. Oh, yeah. Lois Lane, hello. Remember my dynamite expose on the sex and drug orgies and the senior citizens home? Remember the scene? How you doing? Jimmy Olsen, photographer. Oh, hi. Clark Kent, nice to meet you. Coming and going. It's got everything. It's got sex, it's got violence, it's got the ethnic angle. I mean, look Yeah, at so it. is a lady wrestler with a foreign accent. Ken, can you open this? Oh, sure, Mr. White. This could be the basis <clears throat> for a whole series of articles. Making sense of senseless killings by Lois Lane. I mean, we get psychologists, we get... Lois, you're pushing a bunch of rinky-dink tabloid garbage. <laughs> The Daily Planet has a position. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to shake it up like that. Oh, well, of course not, Lois. I mean, why would anyone want to make a total stranger look like a fool? With the principal actors in place, it was time to start filming. The producers set an 18-month shooting schedule for both films. Donner was instructed by the producers to film Brando's scenes as quick as possible because Brando had other films he was committed to do. Brando was also quite a challenge to work with. He outright refused to memorize his lines, and this forced the film crew to hold up cue cards just off camera. In fact, in the scene where he places baby Kalel into the escape pod, his lines were written on the baby's diaper. Brando has become infamous for his onset antics, and he certainly lived up to his reputation on this shoot. Now, Gene Hackman wasn't perfect on the set either. At first, he refused to shave off his then-trademark mustache, and it took Richard Donner agreeing to shave off his mustache for Hackman to comply. This was the 1970s. Much like how everyone wears beards today, back then, it was mustaches. Hackman wasn't also keen on wearing a bald cap, so they changed part of the script to imply that he wore different hair paces throughout the film and wouldn't reveal that he was bald until the very end of the film. Now, for Christopher Reeves, well, he enlisted David Prowse, the actor who played Darth Vader in Star Wars, to help supervise his workout regimen. The point is that when I started, I was a string bean, and Superman's not a string bean, so... Already, on this diet, I eat four times a day. Uh, I, tell you, I tell you, I'm on a high meat diet, protein diet. Uh, 
vitamin pills, nothing like steroids or anything like that. But, um, I mean, I get to eat as much of as anything that I want, and it's, it's great, you know. The thing is that on this part particularly, you have to start from the outside and work in. You can, you can do all the interior work you want to do, and it's still it's not going to get you to Superman if you don't have the physical strength to go with it. The thing that happens is that the stronger I get, you know, and I'm still not all that strong, but I'm, I'm getting that. The stronger I get, the more it helps my mental attitude towards the part. What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He has all these powers, but he's got, he's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way, you, everybody goes, <laughs> you know, but he's not kidding. Reeves went from 182 pounds to 212 pounds during the entire shoot. In fact, there were some scenes where he looks visibly smaller than in other scenes. Now, according to Jack O'Halloran, the actor who played Non, Reeves was a bit cocky both on and off the set. And Reeves was known for not changing out of his Superman costume at the end of the day so he could wear it off set to woo the ladies. The shooting at Pinewood Studios in England pretty much went off without a hitch. But once the crew moved things over to New York for the Metropolis filming scenes, this is where all chaos broke out. Things were starting to go behind schedule, causing tensions between Donner and the producers. One night while filming a scene, New York City just went dark. This was the infamous 1977 blackout, and this forced the production to move to Alberta, Canada to start filming the scenes involving the town of Smallville. Again, pushing things even further behind schedule. Things got so bad that the Salkins and Spangler were not even on speaking terms with Richard Donner. Second unit director Richard Lester, who had worked for the Salkins on previous productions such as Three Musketeers, had to become the middleman between Donner and the producers. Richard Donner immediately sought composer Jerry Goldsmith, who had scored Donner's film The Omen, and he brought him on to do Superman. However, scheduling conflicts made it impossible, and the producers aggressively went after the composer with the Midas touch, John Williams, who had scored both Jaws and Star Wars. With things really starting to spiral out of control, the production ran out of money, and the producers were forced to go to Warner Brothers and renegotiate the negative pickup deal. Warner Brothers agreed to put up $20 million in exchange for the TV rights. Remember, this is a time before home video, and when networks aired movies, it was a big deal. Now, the producers were pretty upset by this. By early 1978, they were so behind schedule that the Salkins told Donner to stop filming and work on post-production for what would be the first film. They wanted to f release the film in summer 1978. After the massive success of Jaws and Star Wars, studios knew the summer was the best time to release a film. As summer got closer and closer, it was clear Donner was not going to make his deadline. So the frustrated producers scrapped the summer release in favor of a Christmas release. Donner was still cutting the film together just weeks before the new deadline. Superman was released on December 10th, 1978 to rave reviews. Currently holds a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. The film would go on, Superman would go on to be the second highest grossing film in 1978, topped by only the film Grease. Warner Brothers was thrilled because it was their most successful film to date. Christopher Reeves and Margot Kidder became household names overnight, and for the third time in a decade, the world was captured by the magic of a film. But all was not good in the city of Metropolis. You are the one they call president? I am. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. Good. Rise before Zod. No. Kneel before Zod. 
You are not the president. No one who leads so many could possibly kneel so quickly. I'm the man they're protecting. I'm the president. I'll kneel before you if it will save lives. It will. Starting with your own. Donner and the producers were still not on speaking terms. And let's not forget, this was only one of two films. The second Superman wasn't finished, and the crew needed to get back to work because there were still scenes that needed to be filmed. Where things really went south was when Donner publicly criticized his working relationship with the Salkins and Spangler. Spangler wanted to kill him. The Salkins, they came up with a less severe punishment. They fired him. The producers then turned to second unit director Richard Lester to take over the directing duties. This would lead to a major change in the theme and tone of the second film. Now, Donner had already filmed 75 to 80 percent of Superman 2. Both films were being shot simultaneously. Now, Richard Lester would not be credited as the director unless he filmed at least 51 percent of the film. So the producers allowed Lester to reshoot several scenes. Now, two big issues arose from this decision to do several reshoots. First was that Gene Hackman and Donner were close friends, and Hackman outright refused to participate in any reshoots. The other issue was that the producers didn't hand over the money to Brando that was owed to him from the 14% total gross deal. Brando just sued the producers, and he won a $50 million judgment. Now, for this, the producers promptly cut Brando's scenes out of the second film. For scenes involving Gene Hackman, Richard Lester had to shoot with a body double, and let's be honest, some really bad voice dubbing. Superman 2 was released in December 1980. Although it didn't make the same numbers as the first film, it was still a huge success. Now, this time around, the Salkins and Spangler did have the TV rights to Superman 2, and they made an insane amount of money selling those rights to different countries. And because they also held the rights to the film, they were able to recut different versions for different markets. The main reason for these recuts was that TV stations paid by the length of the film. The theatrical release of Superman 2 was right about 2 hours and 6 minutes. However, most TV cuts were in excess of 2 hours and 28 minutes, forcing the TV studios to reserve a 3-hour block for a broadcast. This meant, of course, that they could charge more for advertising, but it also meant they had to pay more for the film rights. Now, one can make the argument that Richard Lester added a lot of that campiness to Superman 2 that Donner worked so hard to keep out. 26 years after the release of Superman 2, hardcore fans would finally get a chance to see Donner's vision for Superman 2. The DVD release of Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut, hit store shelves in 2006, to coincide with the DVD release of Superman Returns. Although Donner was not able to recover all of the film he shot, he was able to piece together some 80% of his film. 20% of Lester's cut was used to fill in the gaps. First thing you're going to notice is the silliness of Lester's version is gone. This version feels more like the original Superman. And in the opening scenes of the Donner cut, you see Superman hurl the nuclear missile from part one into space, and its explosion is what causes... General Zod, Nan, and Ursa to be freed from the Phantom Zone. There are several other scenes that are quite different. The way Lois Lane is able to coax the identity of Superman from Clark Kent, completely different. In the Donner cut, the entire Paris Eiffel Tower scene is not there. That was something that Richard Lester shot after Donner was fired. Now, I strongly recommend to any Superman lovers that they seek out Superman 2, the Donner cut. It's really, really interesting, and the supplemental material is just outstanding. Richard Lester would go on to direct Superman 3, 
This one starred Richard Pryor. He was the star, not Superman. And this is where the franchise starts to take what I like to call the Schumacher effect. Now, please see our episode, Do People Really Care About Batman?, to fully understand what I mean when I say the Schumacher effect. Superman 3 was filled with so much campiness that it made Richard Lester's version of Superman 2 feel serious. Now, as far as the other Superman films, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, Superman Returns, and Man of Steel, I want you to look for me to do a little more digging on those films in future episodes of the How Is This Movie podcast. And so be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Now, How Is This Movie is a proud member of the Musings of a Geek family. You can find this podcast and several others at musingsofageek.com. We're also lucky enough to be featured on several different internet radio stations, including Spark Radio. You can find them at sparkradio.us, Wildfire Radio, wildfireradio.com. And just today, we joined Geek Life Radio, which you can find their website at geekliferadio.com. We are happy to be a part of that station. I've been checking out a number of their different shows that they carry on there. It's, it's pretty entertaining stuff. So for myself, Dana Buckler, I want to thank you so much for listening. When a film opens and uh, it goes through the roof, you're, you're part of it. You're going right up through the roof with it. If you're part of something that's successful, then it is kind of your kid. And you go and you watch people line up for it. You know, I don't care how many pictures you do if you have a big hit. It just makes you feel wonderful. It was a bit like a dream. You, you don't really put it together until after. You're kind of so stunned that you don't know what's happening. You're going, wow. The movie, both in terms of its appeal to the audience and then its commercial success, uh, probably performed at the uppest end of everybody's hopes. It's just the most fulfilling, one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. And, and as the omen was before... Uh, this superhero was that much more. Good evening, Warden. I think these two men should be safe here with you now until they can get a fair trial. Who is it, Superman? Lex Luthor. Greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time? I hereby serve notice. He's serving notice to you. That these walls. These walls here. Will you shut up, please? You. All right, take away, boy. Oh, you, you. Don't hit This country is safe again, Superman. Thanks to you. No, sir. Don't thank me, Warden. We're all part of the same team. I.
the How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.